think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello everyone, this is episode uh, 31 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 32nd episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Etienne Rainville. And uh, this week we are we have the, some hot hot takes and uh, hot takes on takes, really, like a meta take. Sure. Because uh, we're going to start off with, I think, possibly the spiciest thing that has ever crossed uh, the Boys in Short Pants news desk, and that is uh, the Bill Morneau Batman piece. Uh, that it ran in the Toronto Star today by uh, Donovan Vincent, a sort of, uh, I think fluff piece is probably generous. a fair, fair way to put it. I'd call uh, it a generous description of it. Yeah, he. Uh, the headline is, Bill Morneau opens up about his path to the political hot seat. And then there's a subhead that is like Lord of the Rings level long, so I'm not <laughs> going to read it. Um, but yeah, it's a really hell of a thing. Cause it, it starts off... Yeah, let, let me just read the yeah, opening line ahead. here. And some of Finance Minister Bill Morneau's staff have a nickname for him, Bruce Wayne. It's a term of endearment. Wayne's Batman alter ego is an ultra-wealthy industrialist who dons a cape and uses his skills, intellect, and brawn to fight for the underdog. Yeah, you had some issues right off the bat here. So, <laughs> one sec, one more paragraph. Similarly, Morneau, a highly educated and wildly successful entrepreneur, left his business in 2015 and entered politics he says because he wants to champion the vulnerable particularly middle-class canadians with financial worries i think we'll just read the next one too because it's fantastic <laughs> it just gets but better batman better. is often misunderstood and maligned by his public lately you have to, you have to do the batman voice lately bill morneau feels the same way so this is a hilarious comparison yeah um well okay the one comparison i do see here is that both of them inherited already very stable and profitable family businesses and huge estates. Yes. So that that's the one comparison I can definitely see. I think that is fair. Yeah. I think the author did a disservice to the Batman universe when he describes Batman uh, as using brawn to fight for the underdog. No, he mostly, he's like a mentally deranged billionaire who dresses up as a bat to beat up poor people and you know, also supervillains, but... Uh, Not the way I would phrase it. Yeah. I, I would say he's a vigilante who's, like, very revenge-driven because of what happened to his family. And also dresses like a bat. I think um, that, that's important here. I, I don't think he particularly has, like, this protecting of the underdog theme that perhaps some well, other... Well, I mean, like, certainly protecting, but not, like... You know, he's not like Green Arrow, you know, not like fighting for justice. And yeah, I, I don't think it's really his cause. His cause is not the protection of uh, the underdog so much as just the beating on the villains. And, yes. And that happens sort of as a as a, as a result, as a bug and rather yeah, than a and, feature. Okay, and I kind of alluded to this, but just right in the first, like, description here, a highly educated and wildly successful entrepreneur. It's, it's like... I don't know if Bill Morneau is a wildly successful entrepreneur. I actually took some issue with that characterization yeah, as I well. Mean, like, and this is kind of what I said, is that he's, like, a guy who, yeah, Etienne, like, they, they go into this, is that he joined the family firm when he was 28, uh, after working some other jobs for a while. Odd jobs. I, I, so I mean, goes, not odd jobs. It was well, like, you know. <laughs> so it starts, it talks about him uh, borrowing money from his father. To open a pool cleaning business in his early teens. Uh, he goes through university, occasionally periodically works for his father's firm and some other people while he's in university. 
goes and gets several master's degrees, comes back, works two years at the family business, Starting and at then age is 28. at age 28, and then becomes president of the business two years later. Yeah, see, that's like, do you know what? I feel, like, I'm sure Bill Morneau is a smart, talented guy, but I bet that if he had joined the firm at 28, if the firm didn't have his last name on it, he wouldn't have become president at 30. I think that's probably fair to say. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> um, particularly my, my take here with the the entrepreneur label is, you know, two years experience and then placed into the position of power of your father's company, in my mind, doesn't make you an entrepreneur. Um, no, in the same way that, like, calling it, Donald Trump an entrepreneur, I think, is kind of misleading. Like, he inherited an already tremendously large business from his father and more or less ran it incompetently for about 40 years. And unless Morno Pool Cleaning Services is in still wildly successful in cleaning yeah. the pools around yeah. Toronto, well, like, yeah, like, okay. I don't know that he's ever started a business, yeah. and that's really what I associate with... Yeah. Like, Bill Gates, for example, like, his father was a wealthy corporate lawyer, and if, you know, they were, if they had started the firm Gates and Gates, right, or Gates and Son, I think then you'd be like, well... Okay, like, I don't know if I can call this guy an entrepreneur, but he goes on to, like, make his own company, and obviously it's very large. And, like, okay, fair enough, but, like, I don't I don't say that you can't be an entrepreneur if you have wealthy parents. I'm saying that it's kind of odd to describe someone as an entrepreneur if basically all they do is run the family business. Yeah, I, I personally, I don't see that as entrepreneurial. Between our, our nitpicking here and our description of Batman, I, I feel like we'll probably get some pushback and some yeah, people and roll their fine. eyes. Yeah, that's fine. That's um, fine. But all of this to say... This piece is hilarious. Yeah. Um, it's the most fawning piece I think I've ever read about a sitting politician. So it does some token attempts of, you know, showing the other side and mentioning um, that Bill Morneau is currently involved in these ethical issues, but it of course gives him the final response on them. Yeah. And it also includes, like, quirky attempts at humanizing anecdotes, like this, this his, he cries over the parent trap. Okay, and yeah, David Aiken pointed out on Twitter, so, so Morneau, like, here's a quote from the piece. For instance, Morneau, who loves watching movies with his wife and kids, very, very odd hobby, by the way. I don't know who, that's very endearing and, and unique. No one else does that. Admits to getting teary-eyed during parts of the 1998 comedy The Parent Trap, starring Lindsay Lohan. And like, okay, you think that that's, you know, how, how endearing and humanizing. The weird thing is that Will Ferrell said the same thing on Conan O'Brien's show on Thursday night, which is, to me, like... An astonishing coincidence, <laughs> if it's a coincidence. But, like, you know, I find it really weird that you're, like, poaching stuff from late-night answers to, like, fluff your human interest piece if you're Bill Morneau at this point. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm less conspiratorial. I just think it's a very, very, very hard-to-believe coincidence. I think there's just a secret society of people who love uh, the parent trap, specifically, very specifically, the Lindsay Lohan 1998 version of it. Yeah. Um, it uh, it strikes me a little bit. I, I wish I could see the interview as, like, sort of a Mitt Romneyism, where, like, the trees are at the right height. Like, Wait, I'm sorry, what? Mitt Romney had sort of all these like billionaire lines uh, of like oh, I know of, NASCAR owners, couple of Cadillacs. Yeah. There, there was one where he was complimenting a state, and he was like, I, "I'm just going to use a random state because I don't know where he was." I like Colorado. You look around, and the trees are the right height, and just struggling for something to say. I'd actually be willing to say uh, Mitt Romney, perhaps the original Batman politician. Well, you know, Bain Capital is a 
you know, it not only rhymes, but it also <laughs> yeah. also is a Batman villain. So. Thematically fits well. Yeah. Um, Mormon Batman. Very, very in, more interested in fighting justice than Bill, or not fighting justice, in well, fighting crime than uh, Bill Mordo is. I don't know about that, but... Uh, I'd yeah, say no, no, Mitt uh, Romney, the original Batman. The original, yeah. Okay, I'll just let you have that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go there. Um, yeah, so altogether, just incredibly weird piece. So, uh, like, you, you have to read it. It's on the star. It's by Donovan Vincent, who I think really is not doing himself any favors uh, with this piece. So, but there you go. So let's put the short pants lens on here. Yeah. And and look at a couple things. You mentioned the author. Uh, Donovan Vincent isn't a well-known political reporter. political reporter. He sort of just writes on whatever. Yeah, which um, is you know like he's a reporter. Like he just goes to report on things, and like occasionally that will be political subjects. But he's not a political reporter in the same way that like you know the star has political reporters. Yes. So first and foremost, that tells you something. It tells you that like they went outside the Ottawa bubble. Um, it tells you that it was probably the minister's staff reaching out. Yeah. And doing damage control. Like, do you want an exclusive with the, the finance minister? Rather it. than some random reporter from Toronto who writes on yeah. odds and ends, suddenly getting an exclusive report, sit down with the finance minister for yeah. several and, like, hours. with his family, too. Yeah. Because his wife is extensively quoted in the piece, as is his daughter. So this is something that you coordinate very, very strategically. Yeah. Because when and the finance minister is under fire, you don't yeah. go and have a two-hour sit-down interview with a reporter you don't think is going to be exceedingly friendly, and yeah. you sure as hell don't do it with your daughter on the phone and your wife in the room. Yeah, and um, that, you're right. I think, like, clearly there was a lot of prep that went into this, both from, like, the picking the reporter to, like, picking the venue, because the star is, you know, very, very liberal-friendly, um, to also, I think, preparing a lot of lines, which is perhaps where this Lindsay Lohan parent trap thing came in, is uh, someone... On the Minister of Finance's staff, uh, watches Conan O'Brien. I don't oh, know. This, this is know. too conspiratorial no, I, for like, me. But so, come on, you can't believe that's a coincidence. I. It's absurdly I specific. I have no idea. We'll never know. We'll never know. Actually, anonymous staffer who uh, came up with the parent trap line or parent trap line, give us a call. I just can't imagine being a staffer and talking to the finance minister of Canada and be like, when he asks you for a personal anecdote. Say you cry at the parent trap. Pick, like, a more conventional thing rather than something quirky. Yeah. Uh, Especially so specific. So specific. Yeah, I, I like that the Toronto Star piece also, like, specifies it's the Lindsay Lohan yeah. one. Yeah, just to, yeah which, which Will Ferrell does in his clip, too, <laughs> yes. I should note. He does specify. Um, to sort of cover the periphery and, and finish off on Bill Morneau here for this week. Well, we have actually more Bill Morneau coming up. Don't well, we? yeah, that's that's this what I mean. This piece, anyway. Um, but to just roll this into the next uh, Bill Morneau segment, um, is Bill Morneau is now formally under investigation by the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner um, for his role in... Putting together C-27. Yes. Which we've talked about before. It's a sort of bill that would... Um, allow the sort of retroactive definition of pensions uh yeah the structure of pension plans yeah so it's defined benefit versus defined contribution um i I actually find this sort of to be funny from the commissioner's perspective um by all intents and purposes i think the to sum up the whole story broadly is that 
Morneau followed the rules, but the rules were crap and the advice he was given was crap. And to be politically savvy, he should have done a whole series of other things. Yep, that seems to be. Um, that being said, the fact that the commissioner is now investigating Morneau for following her advice yeah. seems Odd. somewhat hilarious. Yeah. Uh, generally, I think the commissioner is pretty lax, but this is one of the rare instances where I think it's sort of funny that she's made this move well i think her not just her personal standing but also the standing of the of her office i think has been really damaged in the last month uh as we've kind of discussed i think she like made a grievous judgment call with uh sort of okaying this arrangement or being i think overly legalistic in her analysis uh and i don't mean that to say like you know she's i think there's a measure of the conflict of interest and ethics role that is extra legislative. I think it is about ensuring confidence uh, more so than it is letter of the law. And I think like the liberals themselves recognize this by enshrining that principle into their cabinet manual. Uh, so I don't think I'm out of line by saying that there is, I think, an extra judicial and extra legislative aspect to ethics that I think you need to go above and beyond strictly following the letter of the law where the letter of the law may be weaker or fall short in certain ways that people would perceive to be potentially uh like a a gap in the law so let me let me give a very simple um picture of how i would see this the conflict of interest uh commissioner going back and forth with morneau on his assets effectively okayed his uh exploitation of this loophole i think it would have been prudent in her situation. We, we can talk about whether or not she should have interpreted this loophole, and we have yeah. before. Well, and to be but, fair to her, she has recommended closing it. But that's the thing. Yeah. That, that's where I'm going. If you had recommended it, this would be a great footnote and paragraph in the letter where you say, Bill Moore, no, I approve this, this, and this, but I would note yeah. that you are using this problem, which I've highlighted before, yeah. X instance and X date. And with that, you cover your basis as, as the commissioner. Yeah. You say, yes, you're technically in compliance. However... Do we know she didn't do that? Because I, I would see that as possible. I mean, obviously, like, it, it's a letter she would... This conversation she would have had confidentially with the finance minister and his office. So that may well have happened, and in which case I think they would really have no excuses. Uh, but we cannot know because this kind of stuff is not even atypical. Yeah, I don't know that the correspondence has ever come out. Um, no, I don't believe so. There has been some correspondence that's been published on this, but I don't know that it would yeah. cover that specifically. Well, the opposition or that it has, has covered like, that specifically. The opposition has been publishing any correspondence they get with um, the commissioner. So yeah, that which is smart, I think. But uh, yeah, so now they're they're formally investigating, and I don't like. We'll see what comes of it. I think. It is not a great situation when you have both the finance minister and the prime minister under investigation by the conflict of interest and ethics commissioner. This is the first time in history that that has happened. Mary Dawson's term is also coming up, I think, very shortly. Very, very soon. Well, she's already been extended, like, sort of emergency I th- extension. I think she's had 17 months worth of extensions. Yeah. Again, don't quote me on that. Top of the head number. Um, and Quite I a while. believe her term comes up in January or February. Yeah. Um, and then there were some pieces in various media outlets about this, uh, particularly, I think Caddy had one in TVO, um, about the lack of success so far in finding an appropriate candidate for yeah. it, um, which I find sort of weird. You'd think in all of Canada you could find someone to do this role. Yeah. Um, but... Hey, speaking of conflict of It's ethics, ongoing. Real quick. 
Can we circle back around to the Don Vincent Donovan Vincent piece uh, for a second? Yeah. But, uh, so there's a man in there who's quoted as Bill Moreno's uh, best yes. friend, who is also a government appointee as the CEO of the uh, of Business Development Canada BDC, which is sort of like a state bank uh, that does like business loans and business development. Uh, it is a state bank, Etienne. <laughs> don't don't give me that. Um, but yeah, it, it's. I mean, oh, okay, so his, his name's Michael Denham. Um, he's the president and CEO of BDC, uh, which is a crown corporation. Yeah, Business Development Bank of Canada. Yes, it's right there in the name. Um, so in the piece, he's quoted as saying, "If there's one thing that has really made me mad in all of this, it's that Bill is pure in terms of his ethics and his integrity." So what's known about here is that. Michael Denham is an order and council appointment of a crown corporation, which means his position is, I haven't... Uh, is it at pleasure? Or yeah, that I was going to say, I don't think I have that necessarily in front of me. Um, good behavior. Good behavior. So wow. His, okay. his yeah. position is actually... Contingent. Well, okay, good behavior basically means like if you can make a plausible case that you are doing your job, you are fine. Yes. Uh, but still... I, and to make it this clear, because this is the first thing that occurred to us, he was not a Trudeau government appointee. He was appointed right before the 2015 election. Yeah, so we, we looked up his order in council. He was appointed in June uh, June 18th of 2015, so ju- probably right in the last the round of appointments yeah. um, before the election. Um, even if he's not a liberal appointment, it is incredibly gauche to have a government appointee Yeah speaking about a federal minister in this way and not only speaking about a federal minister in a very positive way but also saying being critical of the opposition saying if there's one thing that has really made me mad in all of this is that bill is pure blah 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 but to be attacked salaciously on character is what's been eating away at me it's like really yeah you're right it's completely inappropriate for him to be commenting on this and especially it would be one thing to be on the record defending government policy i think that would be acceptable but to come to the personal defense of a minister on a purely political matter is just all kinds of inappropriate i think like just particularly so bdc i actually don't know sort of where it falls in the government structure i'm going to presume the finance minister would have a hefty say in who's appointed to the position of BDC. I think that is probably a very, very, very uh, fair assumption. President CEO. I, I presume yeah. they fall roughly under finance. So to have a what, what's effectively a DM, a deputy minister level position at a crown corporation, to have that individual, you know, back you up in your personal affairs and issues. Yeah. Um, While you are under active investigation, mind you. In a like, Toronto Star fluff piece is insane I, yeah it's all kinds of it's inappropriate. incredibly inappropriate i hope that someone picks up on this big time yeah because i once again this is a thing where like if you have a politics reporter they would know that this is really really inappropriate um yes and the people around bdc if i if i were advising oh connor they are the bunkering. president and ceo of yeah. bdc will you comment on bill morneau's personal affairs bill morneau has friends that aren't in government that can testify to his character I think a good sort of mental test here is, uh, I'll call it like the committee test, the parliamentary committee test. Yeah. If you can imagine uh, this individual saying that at a parliamentary committee, I think it's appropriate to say to a media reporter, uh, does it sort of fit the bar of being like fact-based, no personal opinion uh, about policy, 
none of these things. Yeah. Yeah, no, this was 100% pure personal. Imagine, like, Stephen Pollard, governor of the Bank of Canada, speaking to Bill Morneau's personal qualities in front of FINA, uh, the, the Standing Committee on Finance. It just doesn't happen. No. And that's a, a pretty comparable sort of position yeah. to what this individual is in. And it's sort of... It blows my mind that it was included in this article as sort of a footnote. Yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine it's something we will be talking about over the coming week if, if anybody catches it. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Hopefully we'll, we'll see something come of it. Um, I hope this gets followed up on because, yeah, I think we're both of the opinion that it's pretty wildly inappropriate for someone of that rank to be commenting in this way on the political goings-on of the finance minister's office. Uh, okay, um, that I, I think will wrap us up for more No Watch this week, which uh, for, you know, has become, just, become a real uh, running segment here as uh, the embattled finance minister continues his embattling ment- embattlement, embattlement, I don't know, whatever, you guys know what I mean. Um, yeah, so do we want to talk about this, uh, this interesting procedural uh, hijink? Yeah, so... So this week, uh, Aaron Wary, well actually, we'll just talk about what happened in the House, uh, the Speaker of the House uh, broke up the Budget Implementation Act into several votes, yes. not bills, votes, which uh, the, C- the CBC headline gets wrong. The CBC content is fine. Uh, like Aaron Wary's piece was 100% correct. The, the headline says, Speaker splits up liberal omnibus budget bill thanks to new liberal rule. I mean, I think it's more sin of omission than commission here. It, it, should, it should say, Speaker splits up liberal but. Uh, liberal omnibus budget bill votes. Yeah. Thanks to new liberal rule. Um, so the rule in question is a change to the standing orders. Yeah, which uh, are sort of the, the constitution of the House. Yeah, the, the rules that govern the House. Um, uh, change to, uh, I think it would be standing order 69.1. Nice. Um, in the case where a government bill seeks to repeal, amend, or enact more than one act, and where there is not a common element connecting the various provisions or where unrelated matter are linked, the speaker shall have the power to divide the questions for the purpose of voting on the motion, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so effectively what it does is it gives the speaker the ability to break up omnibus bills, most commonly budget implementation acts, the budget yeah. bill, um, which are sort of historically have been this hodgepodge of all different sorts of things. Yes, and are often broken up into votes anyway. Yes. Um, but... So this is significant for a few reasons. One, it's the first time the speaker has used um, this power. Two, the speaker used this power at the behest of the opposition. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, Polyev, uh, Pierre Polyev of the Conservatives and Peter Julian of the NDP. So that um, oh, interesting. So it's not even like consistently the House leadership or the finance uh, critic. Yeah, it was sort of half and half. Yeah, because Peter Julian critic with the, House yeah, leadership on yeah, the other side. Interesting. For, oh yeah, Peter Julian got appointed House critic or House leader just this week. So that's like news. Yeah. So for whatever reason, it was that uh, dynamic duo. If we're continuing Batman themes. Um, that brought it forward. Um, the speaker ruled ruled to split. And what he split out of it, the only one I can remember off the top of my head, is the Asia Infrastructure Bank, bank spending. Okay. Um, so this becomes... This isn't very significant in a majority. Um, in a majority situation where all the bill or all the votes will pass unless yeah. the government really screws up, um, it's, if nothing else, a minor procedural nuance, uh, yeah. nuisance. But precedent... Um, but it sets an interesting precedent, and it also 
So uh, let's address the majority situation first. Effectively, I've been sort of racking my brain. The only thing I can think of is that whoever's government likes to beat the opposition over the head with uh, rhetorically in the House for what they voted for, what they voted against. Yeah. The NDP, uh, Mr. Speaker, voted against, you know, $800 million in AIDS funding. Yeah. And well, the and reason like, they would have voted against that typically is that it was as part of the budget bill and they didn't like all the elements of the budget yeah, bill, well, so they opted to vote against the budget. To give to give an example of this kind of thing in practice, actually, the NDP a couple of weeks ago had a motion calling on uh, the closing of precisely the conflict of interest loophole we were talking about earlier, but it contained tons of language about, like, the finance minister should basically be ashamed of himself and blah, 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 Apologize. which the liberals are never going to vote for, right? Yes. Like, it's basically... And then they can stand up and say, the liberals are voting against accountability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's, and, it's, like, you know, this is what is done. Uh, by but, all parties, yeah. uh, everyone on every side puts in poison pills or... Often parties vote against legislation, and then you can hammer them, say, yeah. you voted against, you know, increased spending for X, yeah, Y, and, Z. And on this particular one, you may think, oh, well, that's, that's dumb. Don't they actually want change? Like, maybe. But at the same time, the liberals could introduce this and change it themselves anytime they want. So there is a sort of, you know, it's incumbent on them to do it. Yes. So all, all of that is to say, this is a, effectively a very minor rhetorical thing inside the House and sort of at community roundtables where if someone wants to be really partisan, they can accuse someone of voting against them. Uh, against legislation this makes that you know marginally less likely um more importantly though what it does is it changes the power of the bia or what governments put through the bia in major or in minority situations yeah and the bia being the acronym for the budget implementation act correct um so in a minority situation this same sort of procedure has been used uh which is to say you put some things in the budget it's a you sort of say, okay, the liberals are going to support our budget. Let's put in some things they don't like, um, but they'll still support the budget anyways. Yeah. Um, so because not supporting the budget brings down... And often you're not ready to fight an election. Yeah, brings yeah. down the parliament and triggers an election um, in most cases. Um, so in this, it allows you... I, I believe it wouldn't trigger a confidence vote, but it would trigger the striking of... Uh, whatever you were voting on from the legislation. Oh, interesting. So you um, could actually defeat a line item yes. in a budget without bringing down the government. That is the way I understand it. Interesting. And I think it would be very... And I think that's significant. It is. Because you're voting on striking different pieces that you don't like in a, uh, in a minor, minority situation from the legislation. Wow. Yeah, that would be... Uh, that'd be really something. Yeah. So I think that changes it. That would very seriously change the dynamics in a minority government. Yes. If the opposition parties could get on the same footing. Yeah, so I think I think this is a worthwhile precedent to note, even though in this particular sitting well, if it you're was the, just a formality. Frankly, if you're the NDP, you are looking at this and salivating, if that's actually the procedural case. Procedurally? I don't think salivating is in there. <laughs> but my, my point is that, for instance, um, like there's much ado about, you know, the 2004 election, the 2004 budget and whether, you know, the NDP should have uh, voted against it. Um, but if they had had the opportunity to just sort of shop, uh, they would have had a huge procedural like a big bargaining chip. Okay, so I'll, I'll caution you a little bit there. The part of the power includes wording very specific for what can and cannot be separated okay. out. Um, so it closes it down a little bit. 
Two, the speaker shall have the power to combine clauses of the bill thematically and to put aforementioned questions on each of these groups of clauses separately provided that there will be a single debate at each stage. Um, and then 69.1 nice. bracket two, um, the present standing order shall not apply if the bill has its main purpose, the implementation of a budget, and contains only provisions that were announced in the budget presentation or in the documents tabled during budget oh, presentation. Oh, I see. So basically, I think what actually happened in this case with uh, Polyev and uh, Julian, what they objected to, was that there were items that were not included in the budget presentation. Correct. Yeah, okay, that is an important point. Yeah, yeah so okay, it's, right. it's more the extraneous things that get tacked on okay. rather than, like, the actual core of the budget. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That That's... Li well, that said, you could still do this on other bills, it sounds like, if they were split up, because it said it can't. they can't group this thematically on budget implementation acts unless there is this sort of, like, extraneous stuff that's tacked on later. Yeah, it's still pretty significant, I think. Yeah, so I, I think it's a, a reasonable precedent to uh, to note, and yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. see, and we'll keep an eye out going forward. So that was a real procedural deep dive there. Um, so, yeah, where this goes. Okay, so um, the TPP. <sighs> Interesting week. Um, yeah, so the TPP. Uh, God only knows what actually happened. I'm, yeah, I mean, you know, when you work on other stuff, you end up not like following you know I, I, the broader goings on as much but i was like what the hell is going on with this and I, several points throughout the week okay so without getting into the specifics of it let, let me give like the the one minute top line here is everyone woke up on what day was it friday yeah uh everyone woke up on friday and there was an article from an Australian, Australian newspaper? newspaper i believe yeah, i believe you're right that said canada ruins TPP agreement, Canada torpedoes the whole thing. The Canadians screwed us, I believe, was the sort of headline um, quote. This was also paired with, um, at some point earlier, with reports that Canada had signed on to a ministerial agreement in principle. The day uh, before. Or a mini a minister yeah, minister-level agreement in principle the day before. Yeah. So it was really unclear as to what the hell was going on and to which articles were right and which one was wrong. François-Philippe Champagne um, put out a tweet clarifying, saying I, uh, Canada has not signed on to anything. There was a whole debacle with Trudeau meeting uh, oh, Abe uh, prior to the leaders' meeting and having a like heated discussion with him in a side room that ran late, keeping all of the leaders um, waiting. Um, which led to the sort of infamous photo of like Trudeau's chair being vacant. But if you look closely, you'll see Abe's chair was also the Prime Japanese Minister of Prime Japan. Yeah. Um, you'll see his chair was also vacant. But from there, Trudeau went to a meeting with Facebook instead of actually attending the leaders' meeting, pissing off a lot of people. Um, and then later in the day... Which, once again, liberals very, very happy to have nation-to-nation -nation relationships with large companies. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and then later in the day... It's the future, folks. It's the future. And a little bit later, an agreement was reached, and the CBC put out a piece, and everyone said, pointed in and said, we have an agreement in principle to continue on the TPP and to maybe renegotiate things. Um, and so there was some praise from some observers. There was criticisms from some. It all really just ended with everyone confused more so than Yeah, anything. I'm still confused, uh, to be honest. Like, um, uh, I, I honestly am not sure what's going on. There were some, like, a lot of some labor folks in um, in Canada 
we're we're quite skeptical of uh, elements of the agreement, specifically on uh, auto parts and auto manufacturing. And it seems like what happened is uh, the government convinced Mexico to basically hold out along with it. I mean, there's a common interest here in that both Canada and Mexico have an auto industry that, you know, they'd rather protect to some degree than not. Um, But they seem to be on their way to getting their way. Uh, We will see. I think neither of us are really trade people who follow these trade deals all that closely. We both have day jobs that have us do other things. And this is a full-time job in and of itself. So take our analysis on this with a grain of salt. That's but, that's what I was gonna say about yeah. this. If if you if you're looking to ask for your trade analysis, um, don't don't do that. Don't, uh, which is why hot takes and Batman comparisons <laughs> is what you want. <laughs> which is why I want to bridge a little bit into the comms angle of it, uh, which say that Trio getting his first basically uh, international round of negative press. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's a new one for him. I think is notable. I think there was, no matter how the government tries to spin this, there was a huge blunder in here somewhere um, in that walking away well, the and lack pissing of clarity. off world leaders. Yeah, the lack of clarity was not good. There was a mistake made, a pretty big mistake, when you're not going to a meeting of world leaders or you're holding them up or any of these things. There was a huge mistake made somewhere along the way. Whether this pans out good or bad um, in the ultimate resolution of the TPP, it lost, it lost some goodwill, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, any other issues that you want to you wanna bring to the fore here? I, I've got one. What's yours? Uh, there, there's a big piece yesterday that came out in the Star. Uh, which, you know, is, is it about Bill Morneau? It is not about Bill Morneau. We, we've given them some, some crap this, this episode, but uh, they actually put out a really good piece yesterday. Uh, that is to say Saturday, uh, the 11th on uh, Grassy Narrows. So Grassy Narrows is a reserve in northwestern Ontario uh, that has had serious problems with mercury poisoning over the last like generation and a half, basically, like 30, 40 years, um, because of a lumber mill, or a sort of a pulp mill uh, in Dryden, Ontario, uh, that used you know, mercury, and then uh, it leached into the soil, and then into the river, uh, the Wabakoon River, uh, and has really, really affected uh, health on that reserve. Uh, as you would imagine it would, you know, mercury is a neurotoxin. It affects people's fetal development. It's really, really no good at all. Um, and basically, it, it came out yesterday uh, in the Star that the province has known about ongoing contamination from basically like uh, soil contamination that happened when the mill was active. Um, so they've known about this for decades, though maintaining that they didn't and that no cleanup efforts were necessary. So I think this will actually be a pretty big deal. Uh, they've The province and the feds have been working together on like an $85 million package to sort of study the problem. But this, I think, may precipitate more serious action if there is not only evidence of ongoing contamination, but evidence that the government at the provincial level knew about it. And certainly it would be a huge, huge story if it comes out that the federal government knew about it. And uh, that would be really, really bad for the government. Um, it'd be a huge issue and require like a very serious public health intervention. Uh, to put an international spin on this, um, the Canadian government's obligated under one of its sort of international conventions, the Minamata Convention on Mercury um, Exposure that it has a special responsibility to vulnerable populations uh, to deal with these kinds of things, especially with mercury. So yeah, that's my uh, sort of niche issue kind of, uh, I mean, it's not niche if you live there, <laughs> I'll put it that way. Uh, and actually there's, no, there's an economic development angle on this too, because um, a lot of people 
and you know the, the term environmental racism is kind of often derided for its you know being kind of parodically left-wing but this is really a case of that in the sense that it's you know an ongoing contamination by seriously damaging neurotoxin that's been allowed to go on for you know 30 40 years um because it's indigenous people right like it, it just no one cared enough to clean it up no one cared enough to study the problem before now like it's it's really bad and also um there's the issue that you know people will often say like oh why don't you know first nations you know do economic development or something and like often you know there are serious efforts and in the case of grassy narrows they had a very prosperous uh commercial tourism fishing uh along the english and wabagoon rivers but because of you know all the mercury in the river that completely killed their uh tourism industry there so once again the government like not only jeopardize people's health, but also undermine their economic development. Like, it's pretty bad. Uh, so yeah, that's what I want to talk about for my uh, sort of issue of the week. I'll be honest, you sent me the article, I never got around to reading it. I'm not surprised, yeah, no. Uh, but it was really <laughs> I, good. I, I didn't know it was for the podcast, I thought it was just general interest reading. Uh, yeah, no, but I'd recommend checking the piece out uh, if you if you have a chance. It's, it's a very good long piece, a lot of investigative stuff in there. And uh, yeah, it's pretty shocking that the government not only isn't doing anything, but has known about the scope of the problem for years. Okay, I'll bridge from there into uh, my issue du jour, which I've been following quite closely, which is cannabis. Um, there have been some big developments on cannabis recently. Oh, yeah, hey, yeah. Two provinces? No, New Brunswick already figured it out by the time we talked about it last, um, didn't they? Yeah, I don't remember what we last talked about. New Brunswick has recently released more regulations. Yes, yeah, just been um, dubbed the th- dumbest plan in Canada. That they're so, now yeah. maybe backtracking on, which was the plan to force people to lock up all yeah. their cannabis products and plants. Which you have to do with guns, mind you. Uh, which you have to do with guns, but if your plant is outside, it would have to be in a locked cage. If it's in your house, it would have to be in some sort of locked cage or locked room. Any cannabis for personal possession around your house would have to be in a locked box or that's ridiculous. in a locked room or a locked drawer. Smoke it in a locked bong. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, any, any of these things, it seemed very ridiculous and is the strictest cannabis regulations for legalized, quote-unquote, jurisdiction yep. in the world, to my knowledge. Well, I mean, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a small sample, but yes. Yes, there's only a few, but when you look at American states yeah. as well as uh, Uruguay. Yeah, I was trying to remember which one. Yeah. Uruguay Lovely and then country, all the other provinces, and you roll in maybe Amsterdam in there and some others. It, it really takes the cake. Yeah. Um, I will commend uh, Winnipeg very quickly. Winnipeg um, or Manitoba? You meant Manitoba, didn't you? Yeah, you meant Manitoba. <laughs> I, I was referring to the provincial capital. Ah, you're using the um, metonym? Yes, metonym. Yeah. Whichever. Okay. I, I will commend Winnipeg, uh, particularly Pallister. Um, so he was the first premier who actually spearheaded the cannabis announcement press conference. Um, a lot of other premiers uh, have delegated that. Yes. And he was actually... So it was my first time watching Pallister, and he was remarkably candid, I would say, for a government press conference, and very, very strong. I thought it was a a great performance. Um, I'm surprised he was just in town for that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you can govern the province from uh, Costa Rica Rica with no email, yeah, as well. (laughs) Um, I mean, granted, I you know, if you ask me where I'd rather be, Costa Rica or Winnipeg, in, in November. It wouldn't hesitate too long. There was uh, there was a great moment in the press conference where one of the reporters asked. Uh, so there was him and two of his ministers uh, were up there, uh, his infrastructure minister and I believe his deputy premier. And the, uh, the reporter asked them if you guys had ever smoked 
uh, marijuana, the cannabis, yeah. the ganj. And uh, it started with the minister on the left side, and she sort of regretfully admitted to, oh, it was 25 years ago, it was only one time. Didn't inhale. Um, the guy on the right side said something similar, and then he just maintained his line of, I prefer beer. <laughs> That's funny. And uh, the Alberta NDP also announced uh, their st- framework for their plan. I don't think the whole thing yet. but uh. So the Alberta NDP... Wait, let me finish up. Oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Manitoba. So Manitoba is doing a hybrid system um, where the private sector will do sales of cannabis, private okay. sales, online sales. Fantastic, in my opinion. And then the provincial government will do bulk purchasing and wholesaling. To the retailers. Yeah. Okay. So they'll act as the middleman between. I, I think effectively every single province will do that. Okay. So that's sort of like the Quebec alcohol system. I think. I, I think a lot of provinces, Quebec, uh, alcohol systems. Yeah. Have the the middleman. Okay. I, I think even Alberta does. Um, don't. I believe that's true. Actually, don't, yeah. Don't quote I think me you're on right. that. Um, yeah. There's always some sort of government middleman capacity, but I think just having the private points of sales will be very interesting. We also shared two. I think. Uh, interesting sort of policy objectives. Uh, One was they were aiming to have uh, cannabis within 30 minutes of driving distance for 90% of the population. Oh, interesting. Okay, usually it's been the opposite of that has been the (laughs) policy goal for like Ontario. You very rarely see um, premiers or ministers talk about these types of usually like on the background or in the policy documents yeah because like i mean you what they're aiming for basically they, they brag about how tough they're going to be on it and he also said um they're hoping to divert 50 percent of the illicit market into the fully taxed and regulated market within one year okay that, that's um, those are good objectives i mean the first one i could really take or leave because i i'm not super concerned about access i mean i think like access is access but that second one is, I think, really laudable. I think that's like thinking very seriously about the problem and uh, how you're going to solve it. So that's good. Um, so in Manitoba, there's still more details to come. Legislation hasn't been tabled yet. The most notable one perhaps being where you're going to be able to consume cannabis and sort of the rules that Manitoba ru- uh, rolled out haven't been rolled out in Winnipeg yet. So okay. there's still more stages to come. Uh, Post Media reported last week that Alberta would be pursuing a... Drum roll, please. Private system, um, or a quasi-private system, that yeah. Alberta is going to keep their greasy mitts on online sales, and that private storefronts will be allowed to exist, which okay. is... That would be consistent with Alberta's alcohol policy as well. Yeah, I don't, I've never done online sales of alcohol in Alberta. Oh, sorry, I just meant in general. Well, yeah, no. I just, think people, I think they sense their limits on that one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think they went as far as they could. Yeah. It would be logistically complicated for Alberta, particularly to set up a crown corporation to do things that have never been, haven't been done there. Yeah. Uh, two, almost three decades. Um, so it's nice to see that even the Alberta NDP have a little bit of blue in them well i mean you ask certain <laughs> NDPers, and they would tell you that in fact a brit ndp is quite a lot um i don't think i'm necessarily one of those people and i've talked about that before but uh yeah no i mean like also I, i'm sure as anybody who listens to this podcast regularly is, is aware i'm i think much more small liberal on alcohol sales uh and you know sort of personal consumption of various substances issues than many many people and when you say when you say small l is that l stand for libertarian 
You could even stand for libertarian. I would I would say small L liberal, but you know, frankly, I don't really. There's not that much of a difference. You can so. be. You're the small L libertarian in my heart. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I'm not gonna go into. I made fun of libertarians enough on Twitter this week, so they um, haven't exactly been heaping glory on themselves. Uh, yeah. So I guess uh, I guess we'll leave it there for this week. Um, one thing I would say, along with you know rating and reviewing, which you guys are evidently terrible at doing ah, you know we got a couple we got a couple um but sure. please do that on itunes and elsewhere certainly a couple more wouldn't hurt yeah, uh, tell bring, your friends bring brings up our rating let's uh let's people know where to find us easier that yeah sort of and thing. that way we appear above canada land commons and the charts <laughs> which would be like come on come on guys uh still some progress to make there um i would say feel free to reach out uh to us on twitter we're fairly responsive um, and if there's something in particular you'd like us to talk about, I'm certainly open to, uh, yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. Open be suggestions. Uh, beer review. Beer review. So I actually can't tell you much about this beer. Uh, a friend brought it back, uh, from a road trip through Toronto ish area. Um, I'm trying to read the label. It's from Bowmanville, Ontario. I couldn't find it and on the a map. Brewery is... It's called Mantler Craft Brewing Co. Okay, I'm not familiar with that. The it is a it is called the Machine and is a Russian Imperial Stout. I highly recommend looking up the label because it frankly owns on like every level. Uh, it's pretty great. But yeah, as to the beer itself, what do you think, Jen? Um, so I've actually not ever had too many Russian Imperial Stouts. Um, we had we actually drank one on the show, I believe, not that long ago. Which one? The I don't remember, but it was oaked. Remember, it was the oaked one. Like it had the sort of coffee chocolate notes. Then the yeah, oak. yeah. I know. I know what you're talking about. I don't think. I, it, I don't think it was a Russian imperial stout. It was just stout. a stout, stout. Yes. Okay. Well, whatever. Um. So there's a couple like benchmark or archetypal uh, Russian imperial stouts. Um. One of them. Um, Forgetting old Rasputin, I think is like nice. the number one like Russian imperial stout. If you're gonna have one, have that one. It really defines the style. Okay. I've never had that one because my friend brought me it and then drank it for himself before nice. before he uh, before I got over there. Um, so it's a, the I find the imperial stouts perhaps to be a little sweeter, um, a little more alcohol taste yeah, than my usual stouts. Yeah, um, but still very good, very drinkable. I prefer it. I think maybe I'm just kind of over the coffee and chocolate note. I think it's like I get it at this point that like that's the sort of point of stouts. But no, I know you love best. them. Uh, but no, I think this is a little more of like a uh, sort of yeah. I like. I mean, for me personally, I, I drink a lot of whiskey, so for me, the taste of alcohol is a good taste that I enjoy. Uh, and certainly the little sweeter note, rather than the kind of more uh, rich chocolatey notes, is, is not bad. I, I would recommend this beer. Good. I would recommend it as well. I have no idea where they're located. Yeah, though. but if you can track it, I mean, look up the label because it's great. The For, Machine from uh, Man Antler Craft Brewing. Man Company. Antler. All our listeners in Bowmanville, Ontario. Yeah. Here's, so here's to you. That'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks so much for listening as usual, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye bye. <laughs>